All right, if you got your Bibles and you want to follow along, uh, we're going to be in Genesis 47 and verses 11 through 31. Uh, Genesis 47, 11 through 31. If you're, if you're new with us this morning, we are going through the book of Genesis, which is 50 chapters. Um, we started January, was a year ago. I was, the joke is, I was 54 when I started, I'm 56 when I end, so... Uh, well, we got about we got about three more weeks in Genesis, and then we're going to start uh, something new. Uh, the title of our lesson this morning is "Prosperity and Poverty." Prosperity and and poverty. Now, whenever you're reading through the Bible, especially the Old Testament, um, and you come to a passage of Scripture, it's sometimes good to ask a question: Why did the author include this? What, what is it that they wanted us to see? In fact. When we read this passage today, you may think, well, why did he include that? He could have left it out or he could have abbreviated it very shortly, but he didn't. Um, uh, Moses, of course, is the author inspired by the Holy Spirit, and he put it all in there. So I always ask the question, okay, well, what is it that he wants us to, to see? And, and as I go through this, two things really jump out to me. One is the prosperity of Israel or God's people and the other is the poverty of the Egyptians. And even while one is getting poor, the other one is, is getting rich. And so we want to read through and see some of the lessons that we can find in here. Let's begin in verses 11 through 14. It says, Then Joseph settled his father and his brothers, and he gave them a possession in the land of Egypt, in the best of the land, in the land of Ramses, as Pharaoh had commanded. And Joseph provided his father, his brothers, and all his father's household with food according to the number of their dependents. Now there was no food in all the land. Of course, there's a, those of you know, there's a, there's a famine going on, right? So there's no food in all the land, for the famine was very severe, so that the land of Egypt and the land of Canaan languished by reason of the famine. And Joseph gathered up all the money that was found in the land of Egypt and the land of Canaan in exchange for the grain that they bought. And Joseph brought the money into Pharaoh's house. So we all remember the story, right? There's seven years of plenty and there's seven years of famine. So nine years have gone by. They are in the second year of this very, very severe famine. And the people have had to come to Pharaoh to buy wheat or to buy grain for, for food. And, and, and in, in these two years that have gone by, they've spent all their money. So basically what they're saying is there's no more money to buy grain, yet there's actually five more years of famine still to go. It just lingers on and on. So the Egyptians come to Joseph. Look at verse 15. And when the money was all spent in the land of Egypt, in the land of Canaan, all the Egyptians came to Joseph and said, Give us food. Why should we die before your eyes, for our money is gone? So they come looking for a handout, right? What's their word? Give it to us. Just, you got grain in your storehouse, just give it to us. Now, Joseph knows their money might be gone, but their wealth is not gone. They've still got something to trade or something to barter with. Verse 16, And Joseph answered, Give me your livestock, and I will give you food in exchange for your livestock, if your money is gone. So that's what they do. And that gets them through one more year. Verse 17. So they brought their livestock to Joseph, and Joseph gave them food in exchange for the horses, the flocks, the herds, the donkeys, 
He supplied them with food in exchange for all their livestock for that year. So they bring all their sheep, their goats, their cows, their camels, whatever they got, they bring them to Joseph and they exchange it for enough grain to get them through one more year. Now I want you to keep in mind, and we're going to talk about Joseph's actions. Um, There's a lot of controversy over Joseph's actions and, and some of the things that he does in this chapter. But I want you to keep in mind, had those livestock stayed with the people, they would have died. They don't have enough grain to even feed themselves, much less their animals. So really, the only person who can take care of these animals is, is Pharaoh, because he's the one that's got the wheat. There's a bad famine, there's no pasture, there's no place for them to, to feed. So the reality is Pharaoh's the only one that can care for them. So Joseph is really doing not only the people a favor, he's doing the animals a favor by actually taking them in exchange for wheat, because that's the only way that they're all going to survive. So a year goes by, now they're past the third year of famine, they're into the fourth year of famine, and the people get hungry again. They need more grain, but they don't have any money, and now they don't have any livestock, but they still have something to trade. Look at verses 18 and 19. And when that year was ended, they came to him the following year, and they said to him, We will not hide from my Lord that our money is all spent. And the herds of our, of my, the herds of livestock are now my Lord's. They belong to you. There is nothing left in the sight of my Lord but our bodies and our land. Why should we die before your eyes, both we and our land? Buy us and our land for food, and we with our land will be servants to Pharaoh. And give us seed that we may live and not die, and the land may not be desolate. So the, the Egyptians come to him, and I want you to notice this is their idea, not Joseph's. It's their idea. They come to him and said, okay, here's what we'll do. We'll exchange both our land and ourselves for grain. In other words, we'll become uh, the serfs or the servants or the slaves of, of Pharaoh. Just give us seed. We'll go back and work the land, and then, but the land will be Pharaoh's, and we'll be his slaves or his serfs or his his servants. Verses 20 to 21. So Joseph bought all the land of Egypt for Pharaoh, for all the Egyptians sold their fields because the famine was severe on them, and the land became Pharaoh's. As for the people, he made servants of them from one end of Egypt to the other. Only the land of the priest he did not buy, for the priest had a fixed allowance from Pharaoh and lived on the allowance that Pharaoh gave them. Therefore, they did not sell their land. Now, verse 21, I need to just very quickly hit this. Depending on your translation that you have, it may look a little different. Uh, I use ESV, which is an English standard version. Uh, But if you look at some of the modern translations, they say, He made servants of them. This is verse 21. If you've got an older translation, like a King James or a New American uh, Standard, it says, He removed them to the cities. Okay, now that seems like a pretty big difference, right? Um, how, does it, how does one translation say he made servants of them or slaves of them, and the other one says he removed them to the cities? Well, if you go back to the original Hebrew, the, the verb he removed and the verb he enslaved is only different by one letter. One of them is an R and one of them uses a D. That's the only difference. And so, and some of the really, as they go back to the really old translations, some of the original copies that we have, it's very hard to tell. Is that an R or is that a D? 
right? So that's how some of them say, well, I, I think it's an R. Some th- says I think. But the, 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 the difference in the Hebrew text is very, very, very uh, minute. Modern translations seem to agree that he enslaved is a better fit. After all, there's no advantage to moving them to the cities other than that's where the grain was stored. If you go back to verse chapter 41, it says he stored the grain in the cities. So he would have to move them. He could possibly have moved them to the cities, but then after the famine's over, guess what you got to do? You got to move them back out to work the land, right? So that really doesn't make a whole lot of sense. So most modern translations think he enslaved them or he made servants of them is a better, uh, is a better translation. Verse 23 to 26. Then Joseph said to the people, Behold, I have this day bought you and your land for Pharaoh. Now here is seed for you, and you shall sow the land. And at the harvest you shall give a fifth, which is 20%, to Pharaoh. And four-fifths, or 80%, shall be your own as seed for the field and as food for yourselves and your household and for your little ones. And they said, You have saved our lives. May it please my Lord. We will be servants to Pharaoh." So Joseph made it a statute concerning the land of Egypt. Remember, this is Moses' writing. And Moses said, And it stands to this day that Pharaoh should have the fifth, and the land of the priest alone did not become Pharaoh. So what? remember, Moses is writing this some 400 years later, before they get ready to go into the promised land. So what Joseph instituted during his administration was still standing or was still in place, was still the law of the land, 400 years later. And by the way, who better than Moses would know? After all, he grew up in Pharaoh's palace, right? Um, before, he, before he ended up uh, leaving there. So he would know, uh, obviously, all about this. Now, so what we've seen is the Egyptians are basically losing everything they own, right? They've spent all their money. They've, they've traded all their livestock. Now they've basically sold themselves and their land. They've lost everything. At the same time, the people of of Israel who are living in the land of Goshen, they're prospering. Look at verse 27. Thus Israel settled in the land of Egypt, in the land of Goshen, and they gained possessions in it and were fruitful and multiplied greatly. So while one people is, is getting poorer and poorer and poorer, this other people is getting richer and richer and, and richer. And we'll talk about that in, in just a little bit. Now, before we get there, we have to talk about Joseph's actions. It, the things that he did, selling the grain for money, trading the grain for livestock, and eventually trading grain for people's lands and people's bodies, were they right or were they wrong? Up to this point, Joseph is, as, as we've seen over and over, he is a godly man. So are these actions right or are they, are they wrong? You see, if you go read some commentaries, a lot of, com- especially modern commentators, criticize Joseph. And they say, well, look, look what he did. He, he took all these people's money, he took their livestock, he took their land, he even took their, their own bodies. Especially that last part. They, they say he enslaved them. And they say, well, that's, that's harsh, that's degrading, and, and he should have never have done that, right? Now, Matthew Henry says this, and I, I agree with him. You cannot judge what they did then by today's standards. We are, we are living in a time where we're judging people 300 years ago, 500 years ago by today's rules. 
And that is a, that's, you cannot do that kind of thing. So before we're too quick to condemn Joseph, by the way, who up to this point we know is a godly man, we need to look at several things about his actions. So I want to point out a few things about Joseph. Number one, neither the grain nor the gain belong to him. Okay, I think that's key here. Remember, he's second in command, but he doesn't own any of the grain and he's not making any of the profit. Okay, you, you can't condemn him for selling grain when it was never his to give away. Right? It doesn't belong to him. It's not his to give. All the grain belongs to Pharaoh and all the gain, all the profit would belong to Pharaoh. Joseph's not making a penny off of this. He's not enhancing himself He's already second in command, right? The only place to go is one more up, and that's Pharaoh. So there's no... He doesn't get anything off of this. So that's one thing we need to see, that all the stuff he does never brings him one penny of personal gain uh, at Egypt's expense. His job, his duty as administrator is to further Pharaoh's interest, yes? And that's what exactly what he, what he did. By the way... Let's just think for a minute. If he starts giving it away, what do you think Pharaoh's going to do? You're fired. Bring somebody else in. You're gone. Right? He's got to take care of his family. He's got a whole bunch of descendants. He needs to stay where he is, right? So he did what he had to to do. I also want to talk about this one because this ends up being a big issue, and that is slavery. Okay? Whenever... The fact is, whether you... I mean, there's no way to read around it. He enslaved the people. They became servants or slaves or serfs or whatever words you want to use for it. Now, whenever we come to passages like this in the Bible that that always brings up questions about slavery, and I want to take some time this morning uh, to address this. By the way, I, I hope you all understand this. Do you understand that we need to talk about the hard things? You need to talk about, because listen, I learned a lot, there's an old saying that nature abhors a vacuum. You ever heard that saying? Because if you don't talk about the hard things, if you don't treat those hard things with truth, then something's going to come in and fill it. Lies and deception and untruths, and you're going to get, you'll get it from books or movies or CDs or everywhere else but the Bible if you don't talk about it. That's why we have to talk about the hard things. And slavery, of course, is a hard uh, thing. So whenever you see passages like this in the Bible, and they talk about slavery, questions come up. Well, is the Bible condoning slavery? Why doesn't the Bible speak out more strongly against slavery? Why does the Bible sometimes, like here, seem to even condone uh, slavery? So I want to stop this morning and address these questions because they're there. Now, you and I, whenever we hear the word slavery, we cannot help but think about one particular type of slavery, and that is the slavery that was practiced here in America, right? Because that's, we all, we've seen pictures, we've learned about it in the history books, we've, uh, you know, there's, it's part of our southern uh, heritage, like it or not, it's just part of who we uh, are. We've always heard about it. So when we think slavery, when you hear the word slavery, that's immediately what comes up to us. And that was a slavery which was immoral, it was inhuman, it was degrading, and it was cruel. Okay, there is no, absolutely no doubt about that. 
And as we all know, it basically occurred here in our country from about the the 16th or 17th century up till about the 19th century, uh, where obviously Africans were unwillingly, and that's the key word there, they were unwillingly taken or stolen from their lands, and they were brought to the New World to work on plantations, to work on farms. Now, in the Bible, this is described as man-stealing. There's a word for it in the Bible. It's called man-stealing. Now, this practice of man-stealing is absolutely abhorrent to God. God hates it. It is forbidden in the Bible. It's forbidden in the Old Testament. It is forbidden in the New Testament. It is condemned in the Old Testament, and it is condemned in the New Testament. And don't let anybody ever tell you any different. In fact, the penalty for that in the Old Testament was death. Exodus 21, 16, whoever steals a man and sells him and anyone found in possession of him shall be put to death. It was funny to me, I go back and, and I, I read how, the, how the church, some of the churches in the South supported slavery. And they would look at passages of the Bible and say, see, see this, see this, but they would always skip this one. You remember we talked about that? You can always go into the Bible and make it mean what you want it to mean, but it'll always be at the expense of very clear passages that are telling you, don't do that. Are you with me? You can, you can pick and choose out of the Bible if you want to, but there's a very clear passage. They, they, they didn't tend to bring that one up because it says not only the person that steals that man and sells him, but the person that buys that man shall be put to death. So that is clearly condemned in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, listen to this, slave traders are listed among those who are ungodly, unholy, sinful, and profane. They're put in the same bucket with people who beat their parents. And that's about as bad as you can get. Somebody that beats their own parents. Murderers, uh, homosexuals, perverts, adulterers. Man-stealers or enslavers are put in that same uh, thing. 1 Timothy 1, 8 through 10 says this. Paul is writing. He says, The law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, and then right there it says, enslavers or man-stealers. That's that same word. For people who steal people and sell them into slavery, that it says they're, they're no better than, than, than people who beat their parents and liars and adulterers and homosexuals. They're not going to inherit the kingdom. So it's very, very, very clearly condemned in, in the Bible. So any type of slavery that's based on stealing somebody, taking somebody unwillingly and selling them into slavery, which is exactly what happened here in America, that is strongly, strongly condemned by the Bible. At the same time, there is a type of slavery that the Bible does allow, and that is an economic-based slavery. You see, what, what many people fail to understand when you open the Bible and you see the word slavery you immediately think, well, it's, it's the same kind of slavery, but that's not true. The, the slavery that was practiced back in Bible times was very different kind of slavery than the kind that was practiced in America. 
The slavery in the Bible was never about race. It was never about nationality. It was about economics. It was about social status. You see, back in that day, and, and this is not only back in the day of the Egyptians, but even up to the Roman times, people would sell themselves to somebody else because they couldn't feed themselves. They couldn't support their family. you got to remember, there is no welfare system back then, right? In the Roman days, in the Bible days, there's, you don't go to the government office and say, hey, I need some, I, I'm having trouble making it, can I sign up for welfare? There is no welfare. So if things go bad for you, you've only got a few choices. You can go out on the street and beg. Maybe if you were a woman, you could prostitute yourself. Or you could sell yourself into slavery or into uh, servanthood for somebody. And that was done all the time because, again, there's no welfare system. That was how people survived back then. Now, was it ideal? No. No, who wants to do that, right? We all want to be free, but in that day and age, that was just how you survived. So it was reality. So the Bible allows it and doesn't outlaw it. It's a lot like divorce. I kept thinking about this when I was reading it. The Bible, the Bible says God hates divorce. He hates it. But he also understands it's a reality, Right? You, you know, what, you know if, you, if, you, if he completely outlaws it, you make a man and woman stay together that hate each other, probably one of them is going to kill the other one. That ain't good. So, in a sense, it says, okay, I don't like this, but it's kind of a reality uh, here with you guys, so I'm going to allow it. And so that's what the Bible does. It, it allows it, but it doesn't like it. It's the exact same thing here with this economic-based slavery. It doesn't like it. it doesn't, it's not an ideal situation, but in that culture, in those days and times... It was how people uh, survived. So what the Bible does, it says, okay, I'm going to regulate it. And there's several scriptures in the Bible that regulates it. Deuteronomy 15, 12 through 15 says this, If your brother, a Hebrew man or a Hebrew woman, is sold to you, he shall serve you six years, and in the seventh years you let him go free. So this idea, okay, somebody comes to you and they need to sell themselves to you to, to get out of bad times, that's okay, but you only in the you can only keep them for six years. In the seventh years, you got to let them go. You can't don't make any of this thing for life or anything like that. Leviticus 29, 25, 39 to forty three. If a countryman of yours becomes so poor with regard to you that he sells himself to you, you shall not subject him to a slave service. He shall be with you as a hired man, as if he were a sojourner with you until the year of jubilee, which is the seventh year. You shall not rule over him with severity, but you are to revere your God. I, I won't read all of this, but if you go on, it says, When you let him go in the seventh year, make sure he's got clothes and food and money and, and make sure he's ready for a new start. So it goes out of his way. says, okay, if you have to do this, we get it. <clears throat> but this is how you are to treat them. Ephesians 6, 9, Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there's no partiality with him. Colossians 4.1, Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you have a master in, in heaven. So, it, it, and by the way, it's not wrong to be a slave either. It's, you know, just not only talking about slavery, the economic, but to be a slave doesn't mean you had done something wrong. Doesn't mean there was something inherently wrong for you. After all, guess what? Joseph himself, 
is a slave. Don't forget that. And by the way, he was stolen, was he not? He was sold by his brothers to Ishmaelite traders who took him to Egypt and sold him to Potiphar. He was a victim of of the bad kind of slavery that the Bible absolutely condemns. But yet, God, even in that state, God blessed him. So it's not wrong necessarily to be a slave. We'll talk about more about that in a minute. Freedom, obviously, is preferable, right? That's why Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 7, 21. Were you called as a slave? In other words, Paul says you're in this economic-based slavery and you get saved. You were called. You, you actually are born again. He says, don't worry about it. Being a slave is not a bad thing. God can bless you and use you as a slave. But he goes on to say, but if indeed you are able to be free, then, then do it. He says, i got no problem with that. If you're able to be free, because that's a better situation for you. Okay? So here's the key issue is this. The, the Bible does allow for slavery, but only the economic-based type slavery, where people sell themselves in order to survive. The other type of man-stealing slavery, the Bible completely condemns um, and, and outlaws altogether. And we need to keep that uh, in, in mind. Now, in this particular passage, the people come to Joseph, right? Joseph doesn't say, hey, you know, the people, it's their idea. They say, we'll sell ourselves to you in order to uh, survive. Their arrangement is more like a sharecropper. By the way, which sharecropping is still legal today, right? You, you can go make a deal with a landowner. Hey, I'll live on your land I'll plant your land, I'll harvest your land, I'll work your land, and then I'll give you a portion of the, of the proceeds, which is exactly what these people were doing. They didn't own their lands, and they had to give 20% of the production to uh, Pharaoh and keep 80% for themselves. Now, so all this is going on, and I want you to hear and don't miss the Egyptians' assessment. Listen to how the Egyptians themselves spoke about Joseph in verse 25. And they said, You have saved our lives. May it please my Lord, we will be servants to Pharaoh. They're the ones that suggested it, and they were the ones that gratefully submitted to it. So in their condition, it, was it undesirable? Of course. Nobody wants to be that in that situation. But if they were happy with it, who are we to criticize him, right? It was a different situation at a different, at a different time. After all, they were talking about life and death. As we said, there's no welfare system. They, they can't go to Amazon and order five pounds of grain and have it delivered by Tuesday. They can't do any of that stuff, right? They, this is life or death. Their concern isn't democracy. Their concern is how do we live another day? And Joseph, by the way, could have done what a lot of people, he could have feathered his own pocket, right? He could have been using all of this to put a little money and a little jingle in his pocket. He never does that at all. He's not making a personal profit. He's not, you know, he's just doing what he's supposed to do uh, for Pharaoh, which is seeking his best interest, okay? One more quick thing. Don't forget this. I think the Egyptians deserve a little bit of blame, for their own situation. Remember, Joseph didn't create the situation, did he? The seven years of plenty and the seven years of famine, he didn't start this up. He didn't create the situation. He just predicted it, and then he uh, came up with a plan to, to deal with it. Now, 
you can understand why people in Canaan, which is hundreds of miles away, would have to come to Egypt to buy food. But why, what about the Egyptians? Was this situation a little bit of their own making? Now, listen, Joseph, remember, they had seven years of plenty, yes? And Joseph's working, man. He's, he's out there buying grain, and, and he's getting people. He's got to get people and horses and carts, and the word is spreading. Well, there's seven years of, of, of plenty, and then seven years of... There's no way he didn't tell everybody. Everybody would have known about it. After all, he needed their cooperation to grow the grain and to transport the grain and to store the grain. So everybody in the land knew there was seven years of plenty, and then there was going to be seven years of famine. Why didn't they store anything up? Why didn't they put aside for hard times? But they didn't. I don't, it seems to me it was like the Noah's flood. It, it, when it came, they were all surprised that it, actually, that it actually happened. They failed to prepare for hard times. And so it's no wonder, to be honest with you, they didn't complain. When Joseph said, okay, let's do this, nobody complained. After all, it was, the, the problem was a lot of their own making, and he was a, a savior to them. When I read through this passage, I don't see anything that Joseph did wrong. I, I think Joseph was a godly man. He had a job to do. He administrated that job. And I think he did that where he prepared for the future. He saved the people. He saved the animals. They got through that seven years of bad famine uh, relatively un, unscathed. Verse 28 through 31. Kind of changes the subject here. And Jacob lived in the land of Egypt 17 years. So this is Joseph's father. So the days of Jacob, the years of his life, were 147 years. And when the time knew, drew near that Israel, which is Jacob's other name, must die, he called his son Joseph and he said to him, If now I have found favor in your sight, put your hand under my thigh. By the way, we talked about this back. It's like a handshake. Today we would shake hands on a deal. In those days, they, one man would put his hand under the other man's thigh and they would swear. It's just, it's just a cultural thing. Put your hand under my thigh and promise to deal kindly and truly with me. Do not bury me in Egypt, but let me lie with my fathers. Carry me out of Egypt and bury me in their burying place. And Joseph answered and said, I will do as you have said. And Jacob said, Swear to me. And he swore to him. And then Israel bowed himself upon the head of his bed or upon the head of his staff. For those of you that have been here, Jacob's been dying for years. I mean, this guy's been dying since he was 70 years old, right? I mean, he's, but now it's really, he really is about to die. Finally, it's, it's, it's for real. And, and I want you to see here how easy it would have been for him just to stay in Egypt, right? He's, this is a good land. His people, his descendants, his sons, his grandsons and granddaughters, and they're all prospering. They're all getting, getting wealthy. He says, but when I die, take me back to the promised land. And bury me there. And this is much more than just about a burial. This is going to serve as a reminder for generations. They're going to be there for 400 years. This is going to serve as a reminder for generations to come that this is not your home in Egypt. That's your home in the promised land. That's where your forefathers are. Go back there. And of course, centuries will go by. But eventually that's exactly what they uh, they do. By the way, this last thing, if you go to Hebrews chapter 13 or chapter 11, I'm sorry, which is known as the Hall of Faith, not the Hall of Fame, but the Hall of Faith. Go read Hebrews 11 and it just goes down and just lists all these great heroes of the faith. And it comes to Jacob. 
And, and when it gets there, this is what it cites as evidence of his faith. Hebrews eleven twenty one says, By faith Jacob, as he was dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, and he worshipped, leaning on the top of his staff. At the end of his life, he just worshipped. And that's what it says. It, it, you know, listen, he's not a, we've said it before, he's not a great guy. He's failed God time after time after time. But at the end of his life, he's still there. He's still standing. He's still got a relationship with, with God. And that's what the writer of Hebrews cites as evidence of his faith. Uh, I've got just a few minutes. I want to give a few thoughts on prosperity and poverty. Because I think, really, if you look at this, what's it about? Like I said, I think it's about poverty and it's about prosperity. We've, we've chased a couple of rabbits in here, but for the most part, it's about this. I want to give you a few thoughts. Number one, on prosperity. Prosperity is a privilege and a calling. Okay? It's not a right. Nobody has a right to be rich. There's nothing in that. God's not given us a right to be rich, but it is a privilege if you are prosperous. And as a Christian, it should be a, a calling. Keep in mind, prosperity, if you're prosperous, that's not good or bad. We've said that before about money, right? Is money good or bad? It's nothing. It's paper. It's not evil. It's not righteous. It's all about your attitude and it's all about how you use it that makes it evil or that makes it... Uh, prosperity is the same way. You can be a prosperous person. Does it make you more holy than somebody else? Does it make you more carnal or fleshly than somebody else? It's neither good or bad. It's about your attitude toward it and how it's, how it's used. Wealth is evil when it's given excess importance in your life. When you, when you put wealth above God, then it becomes evil, right? Anything that goes in front of God becomes a sin or becomes evil. If you wrongfully gained it, if you cheated or lied or stole or whatever to gain wealth, then it, obviously it's bad. If you selfishly store it up, if you put it all to the side and say, this is all mine, keep your hands off of it, I ain't giving it to nobody, then it becomes evil. If you squander it sinfully, if you just spend it on whatever I want, you don't ever think about anybody else, it becomes sinful. And of course, if you find your security in it, if you put your security in your money instead of in God, then it becomes a bad thing or an evil thing. As a Christian, prosperity is a matter of calling. And it means you've got to have the right perspective. Philippians 4, 12-13, Paul says this, and I want you to listen to what he says. I know how to get along with humble means. You know what he's saying there? I know how to be poor. Everybody will see that? And he says, and I know how to be rich. I know how to live in prosperity. What's the secret? I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Through Christ, I know how to be poor. I know how to be rich. In other words, I've got the right perspective on both of them because Christ is giving me that right perspective. So what is the perspective that Christians should have toward uh, wealth or prosperity? 1 Timothy 6, 17-19 tells us, Paul says, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty or proud, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, that they may take hold of that which is truly life. 
As a Christian, if you have money, if you have wealth, if you have prosperity, it says, okay, turn around and give it away. Be generous, ready to share. You should be constantly looking for places where I can use my money to help somebody. That's the attitude. Because what that does, it's, it, everything is in that attitude, right? Your, your security is in God, not my money, so I can give it away. Right? I'm not, I'm not storing it and lavishing it all on myself. I'm giving it away. That's the perspective or the, uh, toward wealth that we should have as, as Christians. Now, let me say this. You will ever so often run across people who will say, you know, Christians shouldn't save. Christians shouldn't have a retirement account. Christians shouldn't put aside money for hard times. We should just trust God, that God will just take care of everything. And, and they, don't, they don't believe we should accumulate, try to accumulate any kind of wealth at all. Now, I don't agree with that, okay? In fact, as we just saw, the accumulation of wealth is, is most times the very means of helping the poor. You know, if you go back to, uh, who was it, FDR that instituted the, the New Society or whatever, it, it's just on the last, say, 75 years that we've actually got welfare. For all the rest of history, there's no welfare system, right? People depend on other people for help. They depend on churches for help. Well, where's that help going to come from if nobody has any money, Right? Again, we can't judge, you know, the Bible's looking at a system where there is no welfare. The government's not taken. Who's going to do it? Well, if, if some Christians don't have money to give, how's that ever going to, going to happen? One of the places they get this from, by the way, is Acts chapter 4, 34 to 35. And I want to explain this to you. We all know this. If you go back and you read of the early church, it says this. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of land or houses sold them, and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. And people say, well, see, that's how the early church worked. Everybody just went and sold all their land, sold all their houses. They, they brought it to the apostles, and they had a big pot of money, and just whoever had a need, they, they, they handed it out. But that's not, that's not at all what that passage is, is saying. For one thing, by the way, if they sold all their land, where are they going to live? Or their houses. You ever thought about that? If everybody, if we just all today sold all our houses, we'd have to take the money and go buy more houses where we could put people, right? That makes no sense at all that they would do that. If you go back and look at the Greek, the verb would sell is, is what's called imperfect in the Greek, which means not that they did it one time, but they would do it from time to time, which makes a lot more sense, right? In other words, if, they, if a need came up, then somebody would say, well, hey, I got some land I can sell. And they'd go sell the land and they'd give the money to the apostles and then they would distribute that money to those. So it's not something they did one time and then nobody had a place to live. It was something they would do from time to time as the need uh, arose. But my point is this, it was the very ownership of those houses and lands which were, they were able to take the money from and, and meet the needs of the poor. If you never owned those things, where would the money come from so if if our there's nothing wrong with gaining prosperity if you gain it for the right reasons and you use it with the right attitude god has no problem with that whatsoever at the same time i've got a couple thoughts on poverty poverty is not intrinsically evil okay now that may sound like heresy to you because wherever you go today 
people, we got to wipe out poverty. We got to wipe out poverty. Have we not been hearing that for years and years? Yes. By the way, Jesus said, the poor you will what? You will always have with you. You cannot get rid of it. Okay? But yet, we are doing everything we can to wipe out poverty. Because we, society sees it as intrinsically evil, but Scripture doesn't see it that way. What did the, the Scripture I just read with Paul said, I know how to be poor, and I know how to be rich. I can do all things through Christ. Being poor doesn't mean there's something wrong with you. Being poor, some people are just born into it, right? Now, again... Poverty, like prosperity, it's neither good or evil. It just is what it is. It's only evil if, if, if it occurs to you because you've done something to deserve it. For example, um, you have a lack of responsibility. You don't work for it. Or you squander everything you have on something. Everybody with me? Then it becomes a bad thing because of, of, of the way you got there. But just being poor in and of itself is, is, is not necessarily an evil thing. Now, here's the other thing. Solutions to poverty, if you haven't figured this out yet, are not simple. Okay? And we should know that by our experience here in America with welfare. You, you just, it's not simple, is it? It just, you know, this person, you could say, well, they, they, they are to blame for their situation, but what about their kids? Are you going to withhold food from the, their children? Everybody with me? It's not as simple as we all tend to, to think it is. As Christians, we have different responsibilities when it comes to, to poverty. And it's, again, it's not a simple thing. For example, we are told in Scripture to give to the poor. Proverbs 22, 9, and I'll just pick one. There's numerous out there. Whoever is kind to the poor lends to the Lord, and the Lord will pay you back. Now, that's a good Scripture. If you are kind to the poor, the Bible says you're literally giving your money to the Lord, and the Lord will pay you back with interest. Okay? So that's a good, that's a really good scripture. We are to give to the poor. On the other hand, we are told do not give to those who won't work. 2 Thessalonians 3.10, Paul says, Even when we were with you, we would give you this command, If anyone is not willing to work, they shouldn't eat. If you're not willing to work. There were people in the church who would go around, and he called them busybodies. They wouldn't work. They just wanted to go from one house to the next, sponging off of everybody else and not work. Paul says, look, they come to your house, don't invite them in. Don't let them eat. They're not willing to work for it. Does everybody see the difference there? On one hand, give to the poor, but if they're not willing to work, don't let them, don't let them eat. So it's not always simple. That's my point. It can be complicated. There's two things I, I want to point out about poverty and the way the Bible treats it. I'm going to give you two words, dignity and diligence, and we'll close here. There's a scripture in Leviticus 19.9 that says this, and many of you might be familiar with this. It says this, Now, when you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap to the very corners of the field, neither shall you gather the gleanings of your harvest. So the Bible told God's people, it says, when you plant a field, so let's say you plant some okra, you plant some corn or whatever, and you go out to harvest it, he, he says, don't go to the corners. Don't get the very last okra bush or, or the very last stalk of corn. And if, and if any of it falls on the ground, just leave it. Now, what was the point? The point was so that poor people could come behind you and they could get some of that okra, they could get some of that corn, they could pick some of them peas and provide for themselves. Everybody with me? Now, here's the thing. We live in a day and age where people will tell you, you need to go pick the, 
you need to go pick the wheat, you need to glean the wheat, you need to bake the wheat, butter the wheat, and put it on their table. The Bible doesn't say that. Let the poor go and glean it for themselves. Let them thresh it for themselves. Let them put it up. Let them bake it. Let, in other words, there's a dignity there, right? See, the Bible, it wants to provide for the poor, but it wants to maintain their dignity while they're doing it. Just giving money to somebody may make us feel good, but is that wisdom? Is that good wisdom? Wisdom seems, seeks to help the poor in two ways. Number one, maintain their dignity. See, there's something, for those of us that work and, and have worked, you know, there's something about doing a job and getting rewarded for that, right? There's a, there's a feeling we should have as an individual that we work hard, we get paid, or we, 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 we reap the fruit of our labors. And there, that should, we should feel good. There's a dignity that, to that. When you're not doing anything for the money or doing anything for the food, there's a dig. Everybody with me? There's a dignity that's lost, and I think the Bible wants to maintain that. The other thing I think that Paul wants to do is he wants to encourage diligence that you get out of that situation. So it's not about just maintaining somebody's dignity while they're poor, but it's also putting something in place so that there's a diligence that eventually they'll get out of that situation. Uh, the, the Bible says in Proverbs that hunger uh, drives the poor man. Hunger drives a poor man. That when you're hungry, you'll you'll get out and do something, right? The the idea is is is, is maintain a diligence in them as they as they move forward. Real quickly, Israel versus Egypt. We kind of come back to this situation. Israel is prospering, Israel is gaining, Israel's got abundance, and Egypt is not. And there is a great lesson here for Christians. Listen, there very well may be hard times coming in America. Okay? There may be some hard times coming in America. I don't know. But let me tell you, we should never worry about that, and we should never panic about that. If God can care for His people, and not only care for them, but let them grow and prosper and, and have abundance in a time of severe famine, let me tell you, God can provide for me and you. God doesn't depend on Wall Street. God doesn't depend on the Federal Reserve. The Bible says He owns a cattle on a thousand hills. He owns everything. He took care of Israel. He'll take care of his people. We are God's people. So even in the hard times, we don't have to worry. Next week, uh, we'll turn to Genesis 48. We've got three more chapters. Hang with me, and then we uh, go to something uh, brand new. Let's pray. Father.